So one of the reasons that I am a Unitarian Universalist is that I take comfort from the many sources of our living tradition. And the one that comes to mind to me today is the source, Wisdom from the World's Religions, which inspires us in our ethical and spiritual life. Because as we celebrate books today, one book that has a very profound, that has had a very profound influence on my life is a book titled, The World's Religions, by Euston Smith. This book has indeed inspired me in my ethical and spiritual life. And for disclosure, I, I first encountered this book under its original title of The Religions of Man. It was rewritten in 1991 to become The World's Religions with more inclusive language. And I'll start with a quote from the book. We are about to begin a voyage in space and time and eternity. The places will often be distant, the times remote, the themes beyond space and time altogether. We shall have to use words that are foreign. We shall try to describe states of consciousness that words can only hint at. We shall use logic to try to cover insights that laugh at our attempt. And ultimately, we shall fail. Being ourselves of a different cast of mind, we shall never quite understand the religions that are not our own. But if we take those religions seriously, we need not fail miserably. And to take them seriously, we only need to do two things. First, we need to see their adherents as men and women who faced problems much like our own. And second, we must rid our minds of all preconceptions that could dull our sensitivity and alertness to fresh insights. If we do these things, the veil that separates us from them can turn to gauze." End quote. So, now a long time ago, when I was a young man, I had drifted away from the faith in which I was raised. I had tried to be good. I went through Lutheran catechism. I read the Bible. I attended Bible study. It was a matter of faith. I tried faking it until I made it. But doubt was so much stronger in me. I heard the beat of a different drummer, and my spiritual interests lay dormant. Until once upon a time in the faraway city of Los Angeles, while visiting my then fiance's mother, I stumbled across Houston Smith's book on her bookshelf and picked it up and started reading it. And the book consumed my attention. I must have known there were other religions out there, but they were never explained to me, nor was I encouraged to study them. But this subversive little book laid clear to me the non-secret that different people behave and different wor worship differently from each other. And in outlining the spiritual and cultural foundations of seven of humanity's biggest religions, the book described to me in understandable ways why each one exists and what they each bring to people. I call this book subversive because in some ways I felt guilty just reading it, which probably helps explain why I found it so engrossing. <laughs> how, how dare I consider anything other than the word? But it was too late. The book was my teacher, and the book was also the friend that helped me break out of jail. The book helped free me to think critically, read widely, and practice things that had been closed off by my overly narrow thinking about thou shall not. And once free, I roamed widely. 
Without this book, I would not have had the foundation to approach and read, for example, the Quran, the Bhagavad Gita, the Dhammapada of Buddha, Charlotte Jojo Beck's Everyday Zen, Starhawk's The Spiral Dance, Michael Harner's The Way of the Shaman, Vine Deloria's God is Red, or John Buren's and Forest Church's A Chosen Faith, an introduction to Unitarian Universalism. These are all still books I keep on my shelf for reference. It is so fascinating to me that there are so many approaches to life and books provide an awesome gateway to explore them. Books are many things. John Huston's book has, I'm sorry, Huston Smith's book, I keep getting the words wrong. <laughs> he's not an actor, he's a religious <laughs> studies professor. Huston Smith's book has also had another role in my life, that of a sparring partner. Many times when I pick it up, it's still challenging my thinking, makes me argue and defend my thinking, and sometimes throws me to the mat when I realize I got something wrong. But that's good, because I think that function embodies the UU's fourth principle, the free and responsible search for truth and meaning. It's great to get excited to buy a book, to gain a critical insight, to just be filled with that energy of, of discovering something new, but we still have the responsibility to test it, to validate it, to ensure we're not just following a book to gain someone's acceptance, and to ensure we're not trying to force it on other people, no matter how much it may have helped us. So yes, this book started me off on a journey, but I'm still on. Now, as an agnostic, animist, Zen Unitarian Universalist mystic, <laughs> I still follow the beat of my own drummer. And as I've aged, I've come to accept that the drummer is like the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. I'll never find them. But thanks to this book, I feel free to try. Mahalo. I want to start out with... Um with an example uh, from a, not a book, <laughs> a different medium entirely, um, my possibly favorite episode of all of the Star Trek series, um, I know, I just started a fight. Anyway, I really love it. Um, in this episode, people on a dying planet send out one last communication. And their device that contains this, this communication finds none other than Jean-Luc Picard of the Enterprise D. And in the space of minutes, it, its sort of uh, inbuilt computer program takes his mind, his heart, his whole being into their world. It's, it's like the most amazing realistic hologram program ever. It's so real, he's completely there. He falls in love. He practices a trade that he's never practiced before. He makes lifelong friends. He has a child and a grandchild. He mourns the impending doom of this planet he has come to love. And then the program ends, and he returns 
to be forever haunted and forever blessed by this experience. His life contains a whole other life. It's so much larger than it was before. I needed to start with this not from a book story because this is what books do for me. Maybe for you too. I live in other lives for a while. I have been a little white girl in small town, depression, Jim Crow, Alabama. I've been a black man in Paris. I've been a man who lived in a tree house and I got to live there for a while, the one he built in one of the tiny islands in the archipelago of British Columbia. I've been a brilliant and disaffected physicist from another planet who knows how to live like everybody in his society, taking care of everyone without anyone having private property. I've been the very ambitious, also brilliant aide-de-camp to General George Washington for a while. In a very strange interlude, I got to imagine what it was like to be a deceased person speaking to another deceased person about truth and beauty from one grave to the other. I've got to, I've had to, I've been able to be a middle-class woman in Regency England and face a future in which the only way I was going to have what I needed to live that was acceptable to everybody I knew was to find somebody to marry, like him or not. I have been a troubled teenage girl in urban Japan in the 2000s and the US American writer who was reading her diary. I've been a sharecropper who left the South and came out to California sleeping in the car because motels wouldn't take me in. I've been a Chinese immigrant. I've been a captured, enslaved tribesperson waiting in a West African nation not my own to go who knows where to these shores. And look at all the places that we have been. Look at all the people we have been. Like Picard, after the creators of these worlds have worked their magic, I, we, whoever is lost in that book, I've returned to my own life, but a bigger one, more complex, with more rooms, it seems, than before I opened up that strange, transformative 
magic pile of paper. In this life, in this skin, I can only be certain kinds of people, but through the amazing power of writers, their research, their imaginations, and then their words. Their words that so improbably bring other lives to life for us. I can live a while as somebody I'm not. And I've learned over the years how thrilling it is to deliberately seek out experiences through books of lives so different from any I will ever live. So I can be a gay man, I can be a straight woman, I can be Indian or Chinese or Motswana. I can live long ago as a contemporary of the Buddha. I can live long, many, many years from now as a person of an almost unrecognizable earth. I can't travel in time in this skin, but thanks to these people, I get to do that. I can't go to other planets, but thanks to these people, I've done that lots of times, and I'll do it again. And I don't have any superpowers. Wait, wait, maybe I do. <laughs> I have one. I have one. Thank you to my daughter, who has it too. And so do you. And so do all these people. And that one's enough. That one is enough to make our lives unimaginably rich. I'll be starting this reflection by reading to you with the beginning of a sentence. I encourage you not to think about this too hard and just take notice of the first word or phrase silently that comes to mind. Ready? History is written by... Well, I imagine that many of you, like myself, would reflexively finish this adage with the victors. Now, like any well-worn proverb, we could interrogate this idea in all sorts of ways. But I'd like to start by acknowledging that it does speak to many truths about our collective lived experience. We've all witnessed in our own lifetimes how power and privilege have been employed to cover up historic injustices and erase entire swaths of the world from the historical narrative. But, it's always a but, I think there's a fatal flaw in the premise of this proverb, saying that history is written by the victors, implies that it can be written by any group in particular. In reality, each one of us, no matter whether we are at the heights of power or on the very margins, is writing history all the time. Whenever we put pen to paper or keystroke to text file and write about our own experiences. 
This doesn't mean, of course, that everyone's historical narrative will be saved and passed down to posterity. I think, unfortunately, the victors have advantage on that front. Uh, even so, no matter how much a side wins in the arenas that shape our world, whether it is politics, art, commerce, or religion, no one can simply will books or other texts into existence. We have to remember that everything that came down to us today was the product of hard human labor, from authors to scribes to, to typesetters to printers, all putting their own distinctive marks on history. Maybe the victors did bribe them with money or they threatened them at sword point, but the victors never wrote the history. Without scribes to strong arm, they would have had nothing at all. And some of the greatest discoveries of ancient texts don't come from groups I would have thought of as victors. Take, for example, the Oxyrhynchus, very fun name, papyri, which were left in a literal trash dump, or the Dunhuang manuscripts, which were left in a sealed cave on the very margins of Chinese civilization for almost a thousand years, or the Dead Sea Scrolls, and all the things that were found in these collections didn't exist because someone won, as though life was some sort of cosmic video game. They exist because someone cared, enough to jot those things down in the first place. When I think of people who cared about writing things down, I can't help but look toward the Christian monks of medieval Europe, bent over in dim scriptoria and producing gorgeous illuminated manuscripts. This idea that copying something down and making it beautiful can be a religious vocation turned out to have an unexpected application in my own lifetime. You see, during the hard months of lockdown before the COVID vaccine became widely available, I found myself profoundly isolated, very unsatisfied by my daily work and cut off from physical community. Part of what made isolation so hard was that a lot of the time I had nothing useful or interesting that I felt like doing. But one day, I remembered a site I made use of once called Standard eBooks, whose mission is to take books that have gone out of copyright, also known as public domain, and produces modernized accessible eBook editions. So for all the gory details, please come to my talk after the service. Uh, now that was a project that I could throw myself into. After hours of tedious work at my day job, I would throw myself into my ebooks projects. I would diligently proofread and clean up books from the public domain to make them available to modern readers, free of charge or restriction. Friction, important part too. I even compiled all of Tolstoy's short stories into one collection, living, as Amy has mentioned, the lives of Russian peasants and soldiers, all kinds of people from a country that I never knew, never lived in, in a different time, but I experienced intimately through the power of these stories. And sometimes I would even take the text from page scans and proofread the garbled computer-generated transcription line by line, so very much like the monks. <laughs> and as I was doing that, 
I couldn't help escape the comparison. Wasn't I just doing the same thing those medieval monks did, but with much more modern tools? And like those monks, I found and still find moments of deep spirituality in my ebook endeavors, prayers by which I refreshed myself, appreciation for the wisdom of our forerunners, satisfaction that the work I was doing was making objects of beauty and intellectual merit available to my community. So the next time you pick up a book, I invite you to reflect on this with me. How did this come to me? What does it say that someone cared enough to make this thing that I have in front of me possible? May it be so. Amen.